From the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria, this is the Dyson House Podcast, a series that investigates and demystifies real issues in international affairs. When we think about war, we quite often conjure up an image in our minds of men in trenches, soldiers scrambling for cover, vivid and violent imagery that is imprinted onto our collective impression of combat. And what we don't often think about is what war looks like for the civilians in the countries where the fighting occurs. Even less so, do we think about a group that, quite often invisible in the landscape of how we perceive war, bears the most severe brunt of conflict, that being women and young girls. So when those most adversely affected by war are also the ones excluded from the peace negotiations, how are they given a voice? Today I spoke with Jackie True and Katrina Lee Koo, Director and Associate Director of the Monash Centre for Gender, Peace and Security, and they were able to shed some light on what gender, peace and security studies entail, and what happens when women are given agency and meaningful participation in the peace process. Hey Jackie and Kate, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. Uh, I thought it'd be good to start off with a bit about both of your backgrounds and how you found yourself so involved with gender, peace and security as an area of academic study. It might be an entire podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I say brief, but it's, yeah, it's, it can be hard. Okay. Oh, gosh, that's a big question. Um, well, it's interesting because on Monday night we had uh, an event um, which was launching the Oxford Handbook on Women, Peace and Security, and Kate spoke at that event as well. And we had a colleague from the United States who was a refugee from the Bosnian War, uh, Mickey Yasevich, and then we had uh, Jennifer Whitwer, who's a former captain in the um, Australian Navy, um, and she led uh, Australian Defence Forces um, first, con- you know, implementation of the uh, Australia's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. In any case, um, now what was my point here? Jennifer Whitwer, and it always strikes me with military people. She said, um, you know, that she was celebrating 37 years of service in the Australian Defence Force. And I thought, wow, and, and she got certain kind of medals for that. And I thought, that's, that's fantastic. And, um, you know, she'd been working on women, peace and security since, I think, 2013. And then I was just thinking, well, you know, like, I think I need a medal too. Because, um, <laughs> if I look back, and I'm not really going to be clear about, you know, I wrote my honours dissertation at Monash University, and it was actually submitted in 1990, so 1991, 1990, I can't remember which year it was now. Um, so that's actually quite a lot of mm. years' service to gender, peace and security. Um, so it's been so I would say that for me, like, and a lot of people ask this question too, like um, I joined the, um, I, I'm sort of a product of the anti-nuclear movement in New okay. Zealand. Mm. Um, actually wrote my first essay in high school. I remember it was when the New Zealand Labour government came to power. And it was really the rise of social movements, women's movement, um, uh, indige- Maori, Maori indigenous movement following the country's recognition of the Treaty of Waitangi, mm. and the environmental movement. So, um, you know, politics was really changing and that really had a big influence on me as a young person. Um, and when I got to university... Um, I was a member of peace movement Aotearoa, but I kind of felt like these guys were all interested in guns and bombs and counting mm. them, and that wasn't kind of where it was at. So I joined a, a really a, a peace group called Limit, um, and I think it had a mean, but it was Limit the military spending. 
And it was at the time New Zealand actually changed the law to allow women into combat roles. Um, and I found myself with a couple of other peace activists writing. My first publication was called Equal to Kill. And it was opposing the integration of women into the combat roles in the military. And it was a really a discursive move. It was kind of to say, really, is this what equality is? You know, so women can be just as efficient at killing like men. Really, is this all it adds up to, peace and security? So, yeah, so... Um, that is kind of, and I, I would say from my second year at university, um, all my major papers on international relations and foreign policy, I really tried hard to, to bring a gender analysis to that. Yeah. And I recognised at the time that some of my professors were very generous in their grading because <laughs> often, you know, there wasn't a lot to draw on and I had to make some assertions. It was difficult to support, but nonetheless, I think it set me on a journey. And when I finally submitted my honours thesis at Monash University, um, it was titled Woman, the State and War. Um, what difference does gender make to international relations? I remember the um, department administrator at the time said that she thought I maybe made a typo oh, in, the, in, the, in the title. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so anyway, it's kind of a long journey, but I, in a way you could say <laughs> I'm a bit boring. I'm still doing the same thing. Oh, I don't say that in a way. I mean, it's interesting that it's like you've been kind of lucky in that there's been like you've been contemporarily influenced. You were sort of in a period of time where you felt like, there was you were informed by these things that were happening and it sort of led you in that direction. Yeah. Plus Actually, growing up in the 80s, I felt really disappointed I didn't grow up in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, I'm Katrina Lee Koo, or Kate. I'm the Deputy Director of Monash GPS. Um, and I've had a very different kind of experience from Jackie. Jackie was clearly far more radical than me as a young person. Uh, I came to this quite late. I was... I guess very traditionally trained in university um, in peace and security and my honest thesis sadly was on nuclear weapons um, and I did guns and bombs all the way up to my PhD when I was writing some very boring paper about strategic use of nuclear weapons and a wonderful woman by the name of Jindy Petman, a professor of international relations at the ANU, leaned across the table and said to me, what impact do you think this has on women? Uh, and that one very sort of quietly spoken question absolutely blew my mind. Uh, and I went away to investigate this question um, much later, I think, than um, the field had emerged by that stage. Um, and this whole world opened to me that I realised that everything I was doing had been so abstract and also so counterproductive to what I really genuinely believed about peace and security. That's, that's really interesting. Did you – was it the <laughs> – did the question sort of influence you or push you in that direction because you suddenly had a, a moment where you were like, why haven't I th thought of yes. it in that way before? Yes. Or was it... I was, um, and I still think that now, I sort of think, you know, where was my curiosity? I, I didn't have, yeah. you know, as Jackie explained, she, you know, she, um, you clearly had that sort of sense from the beginning that this wasn't right. Um, I was well in the thick of it before it occurred to me that I really needed to critically reflect upon this question. Yeah. But, yeah. but I guess, as, as Jackie, you were saying before, there was some, like, very fateful things that happened early on. Like, as in, you, you felt like there was some historical developments in that area that you were aware of, that you happened to be aware of. Sure. So how much of it was, uh, like, did you, was it like a right place, right time thing? Or did you feel like you were always yeah. interested in this? Well, I do remember being four years old and being given a washing line. And kind of mm. being very unhappy with that Christmas present. Because uh, yeah, right. I didn't feel that was a very exciting thing to do. Yes. So I probably protest too much and I'm sure my family would remember that. Yeah, I see. So, and I do also remember being getting some fairly 
clear gendered messages as a child, which I wasn't that keen on. Yeah. So I think that, you know, some of us internalise some of those mm. things and maybe mm. and others of us, you know, for whatever reason, who knows? Mm. It's yeah. just uh, to do with our temperaments and our personalities maybe don't take those messages so so easily. So, yeah. Hmm. yeah. I got there in the end. <laughs> I got there in the end, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, actually, I'd like to um, just move on to maybe defining how you view or how you understand gender, peace and security um, as like a concept and as an mm-hmm. academic discipline as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, the thing that I tell my students and that I genuinely believe that there is nothing in this world does, that does not have a gender perspective on it and that it is not heavily influenced by gender politics. Um, and you can give me anything in the world and I can find a way to explain or, you know, to understand it through a gender lens. It's not the only way I think about things, but I think it's a profound way yes. um, that, that shapes everything that we think about in terms of peace and security from the ways in which we think about militarism and military intervention and how we fight wars and how we end wars to even broader peace and security issues like how we live together well and respectfully, um, how we deal with current challenges like climate change. Um, And I can always give, you know, lots of examples. I, I tell students, for instance, we were talking this week about natural disasters And I'm always reminded of the case of, you know, the Asian tsunami that hit in uh, 2005 into 2006. Um, In that small province of Aceh where 190,000 people were killed uh, by the tsunami, uh, you were three times more likely to die if you were a woman than if you were a man. And that tells us that gender really profoundly shapes how people live their lives and how they experience global challenges. And there's those sorts of – that sort of evidence around everything to do with peace and security. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really concur with um, what Kate said. I think that a gendered analysis applies to every social and political phenomenon, um, but it's particularly important in peace and security where people's lives uh, and well-being are at stake. Um, I mean, we often talk in the field of gender, peace and security about being gender inclusive, and um, so I think that's really important for us to think about. Um, And it seems to me if our societies are structured in terms of gendered roles, expectations um, and inequalities such that, for example, in Australia, the top 10 jobs for men Mm. might be entirely different than the top 10 jobs for women. That already tells us the economy is structured by gender. It's a gendered economy. And what that means, and also a gendered society, and what Mm. that means is that men and women's experiences are very different. Um, and how we got to a situation mm. where that's the case means that girls and boys' experiences are also very different. So then take that into a situation of conflict and try to understand then how then men and women, boys and girls, may experience conflict very differently because they're literally situated in different positions within society. Mm. So we, t- we take that insight and then we say, well, you know, we can't actually make policies on how to prevent conflict Uh, how to address insecurity without taking into account the perspectives of those who are differently positioned in society. 
um, you know, who are likely to, to benefit or not from, you know, the approaches that we take. So a gender-inclusive perspective then says, um, you know, that we really do actually have to talk to men and women, boys and girls, and we really do need to understand um, the difference that their different experiences makes. Um, and, and I think a key thing for us in gender, peace and security is that when we don't um, we, we, we don't focus on that gender dynamic, we miss a huge opportunity. Um, and, and, and that is an opportunity, you know, to, to engage those who actually are deeply interested in peace and, um, and, the, uh, and, 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 and stopping the violence that occurs both within their family uh, and their community but also within their societies um, and engaging them in a way that, that can kind of magnify the efforts um, of everyone and, and especially, you know, including governments who are tasked with, um, with peace and security. Mm. Uh- Oh, no, sorry, no. Oh, no, as, as Jackie was, as Jackie's saying, I mean, some of the research our centre does really creates a very strong evidence base that demonstrates the extent to which that diversity of experience, when brought into, for instance, a peace negotiation, yeah. has a really material impact on the capacity of uh, communities to end violence, um, to find really lasting and sustainable conflict resolution processes and to build peace. Um, So one of the big uh, projects our centre runs, for instance, um, has very clearly demonstrated that when you have women's civil society involved in peace negotiations and peace processes, you are far more likely to get a peace agreement that has very strong um, kind of gender equality and gender provisions included into it and is more likely to be sustainable. It's very interesting. It's actually something I want to return to uh, in a moment, um, the actual... Uh, positive effects and the, the tangible differences we can see when um, gender when uh, gender inclusive positions are taken in peace uh, and conflict resolution situations. But I just wanted to ask quickly. It seems almost silly uh, contemporarily to think about it this way, but. Because it makes it's common sense to be gender inclusive in these situations, or at least in a modern context. But how long has this been an academic field of study? Is it recent? Do you feel like it's sort of just, just before you say just on that point where you say it makes sense and and that's happening? That's actually not happening <laughs> in many parts of the world. Yeah. So you know, if we look at if we scan world politics at the moment, for example, we see the U.S. and the Taliban meeting mm. to mm. Uh, to 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 uh, agree on on a so-called negative peace. There, I would say that will allow the United States to completely withdraw their troops from Afghanistan. Yeah. So those talks do not include any women. I see. No women at all. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, so already, and even though the United States has been and, and international forces have been present in that country um, for nearly two decades, um, and one of the justifications for that intervention was, of course, you know, that women's rights were being violated by the Taliban, um, and the impact of that intervention, you know, there have been positive gains for women in terms of constitutional rights, in terms of mm. access to education, in terms of access to employment, um, and including peace building at the community level. So, you know, our work is not done. Like, you know, we, we have to keep making the point about that, you know, all who are affected by conflict need to be consulted and involved in the decision making about ending mm. that conflict any given yeah. conflict. 
Um, but to your broader point about the field of gender, peace and security, well, in, in the academic, you know, you know, our academic disciplines were kind of uh, constituted in the 19th century and they don't really reflect the reality of the world we live in. Um, and the significant overlaps, for example, between, you know, politics, economics, society and so on. Yeah. So gender, peace and security is really an interdisciplinary field that enables us to draw on the insights from a range of different um, disciplines yes. um, and knowledges. And I think um, if we if we look at it, we can say that um, uh, that, 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 that the, those committed to gender, peace and security have actually been around for more than a century. I see, um, yeah. yeah. And so if we look at women's peace activism during World War One, for example, and the foundation of the women's peace movement um, at The Hague when women were not able to have political rights, they didn't have the vote, but they nonetheless wanted mm. to stop the war and they wanted to speak directly to their political leaders, um, they did convene, especially elite women from European mm. states, at considerable cost, especially, you know, when their governments tried to prevent them, you know, getting on a boat uh, it was at that time. So, I mean, we trace the field right back to that moment when women were making the connection between social and economic justice, gender equality and women's participation in the, and ending war. And we kind of, t you know, we've, we've basically had a century-long dialogue about that, trying to push our way into, into institutions, including academic institutions. And within the field of international relations, which you might say, whether depending on what country you are, it's a subfield of political science, you would say the field of gender and international relations is probably broadly started in the late 1980s, which for me anyway is around the time I went to university. So it is a, a confluence there. And then it's basically flourished and grown significantly since then, such that you could say that in Australia, for example, uh, and we do very well in this regard, that all our major universities would have at least one expert on gender and international relations. Which would not have been the case even in the 2000s? No. Or? I mean, when I did no. my honours thesis, I had some very sympathetic male professors who mm. who said, okay, yes, you can have a go at that. Oh. <laughs> and they were very supportive. No. And I remember the year that um, I got a first-class honours, there were three first-class honours that year out of 50. We didn't have grade inflation then. Mm. And they're all women. And the male professor said, well, that's a real success in the field of international relations that women really mm. show they they can excel in this field. But I think that having a field of gender, peace and security has enabled, you know, many more students to, to take on um, that perspective and to bring it to bear on a whole range of different issues. Do you feel like this um, growth in this field has any connection to the UN uh, Security Council Resolution 1325 um, and the subsequent resolutions relating to it? Is that really the thing that sort of pushed it into the to, to grow? Look, I think that's certainly part of the story. Um, you know, and, and the, the amount of scholarship that now exists on 1325 and the Women, Peace and Security agenda uh, is quite enormous. Um, I mean, I think some of the very early feminist work happened in the fields of sort of political economy and global governance. Um, and it wasn't until later and probably, you know, in some ways spurred on by the activism around 1325 that we started to see an emergence or a penetration into the field of security studies, uh, if you like. Um, <laughs> yes, I am doing air quotes here. Yeah, I can see that just for anyone listening. There, <laughs> there is quotation marks in the air around that. So I think that it has, you know, it, it is a focal point for a lot of people who do gender, peace and security particularly. Yes. Um, because it is the 
global governance architecture or structure that is really sort of at the forefront of trying to think about how we better uh, ensure a gender inclusive or at least a gender perspective in the way in which we think about peace and security. And I think as evidence of the growing field of, of gender, peace and security, um, Jackie and another colleague of ours in the centre has just, um, we've just launched the Oxford Handbook on Women, Peace and Security, which has no less than 93 contributors, uh, which shows the kind of expansion of this field. Mm. I just would say that it's it's lot larger than the Oxford Handbook on International Relations and International Law. So mm. it also shows the the number of scholars and practitioners who want to contribute to the field. Yeah, so it is a, it is continuing to grow in that sense. Mm. Well, I was actually just wondering, has the WPS agenda, uh, how has it been institutionalised and implemented and how successful do you think, do you feel it has been? They're good questions. I mean, you know, the um, a, as you mentioned, there's a the sort of watershed resolution in 2000. There are eight subsequent, soon to be nine subsequent resolutions that make up the agenda itself. Um, the agenda is a thematic agenda that sits within the Security Council, and the Security Council has declared uh, the experiences of women in conflict and peace processes as being central uh, to achieving. Uh, global peace and security. But in terms of its implementation, um, the UN does implement it across its agencies, but also it is a responsibility of UN member states to individually design frameworks and policies in which they will um, implement the ideas of the WPS agenda either through uh, their global activism, so for a country like Australia, in any kind of foreign military intervention it's involved in, but also in terms of its activism um, on the global stage through aid and development and other programs, or in conflict-affected countries in their own processes of conflict um, uh transition and into peace processes. So it happens at the global level through the UN and at the national level through UN member states. It's also used as a framework by civil society um, to help kind of um, organise their activities and programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might just add to that because I think that while the Women, Peace and Security agenda um, started in the Security Council and, and it continues to be uh, the thematic agenda that... Kate spoke about and to inform those national action plans, it's also diffused to many other institutions, including institutions at the regional level. So um, I just just was looking myself at the handbook's table of contents and we have a section there on institutionalising women, peace and security. And then under that heading, we also look at the other UN agencies like the Human Rights Council. Um, we might also look at the economic, the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the International Fi- uh, F- uh, Monetary Fund. And though you, they don't have official women, peace and security mandates, and actually until recently, um, in the forthcoming women, peace and security resolution in two weeks, sponsored by the German presidency, there will be mm. a responsibility for the international financial institutions and it is in some national yeah. action plans, including Norway. So that's really important, especially the, the importance of them investing in and supporting women's participation in, in conflict in fragile countries. We also look at the International Criminal Court, which of course hears cases on sexual and gender-based violence as war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes of genocide. The NATO has a, uh, a women, peace and security uh, framework. 
um, African unions, uh, even SEN now have women, peace and security commitments. Uh, Pacific Islands Forum discusses women's peace and security and had the first regional action plan. The Organization of American States also has relevant commitments, especially you know, around violence against women uh, in, in uh, conflict-affected countries. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the opportunity is for women, peace and security to, to influence, you know, multiple institutions and, and areas. And I think that, for me, is the next phase, you know, beyond 2020. Is, um, a lot of scholarship has focused on what's happened at the Security Council, but clearly the Security Council cannot implement mm. women, peace and security. It requires multiple actors at multiple levels mm. to do that. And it sounds like it is starting to spread across several different tiers of, um, you know, whether it be national, yeah. regional, NGO, yeah. that sort of level. I, I guess it leads me to my next question, which is the Security Council um, has recognised the problem of underrepresentation of women at all stages of the peace process. I just wanted to know what sort of landscape do we see when women are given a full and meaningful participation at, in the peace process? Does this, does this happen? Does this ever happen? Mm. Well, a good case where it did happen is Colombia right. uh, and the peace agreement with the Colombian government and the FARC yes. uh, in, uh, at the end of 2016. So I mean, we, we sort of talk about it, uh, Kate and I, in a policy brief for Monash GPS, um, that Colombia being the kind of high watermark mm. for women's participation in peace processes. Yeah. And it's really important to note there that that participation – that that outcome, a peace agreement, which we might call gender inclusive because it really does include mm. perspectives um, of women, not just women overall, but diverse women, Afro-Caribbean women, Indigenous women, women from rural communities, and uh, to some extent, you know, um, you know, non-gender conforming uh, people. Um, and that that was largely because of the mobilisation of the women's movement for peace. Um, and that women's movement in Colombia had two national forums um, mm. to try to influence the peace process. And they came politically arrived at some consensus amongst all these different groups of women. And, and a key one was that women need to participate yeah. in the elite peace process. And so they pushed for it and they had connections with the FARC. And they were pushing for it with mm. them as well. And then out of that, you got the government then putting forward two women to be on their negotiating team and then FARC followed and put two women on their team. And at the same time, you had Cuba and Norway, both extremely supportive of gender equality as one of the key goals and outcomes of the peace process. Because a lot of the areas in which FARC, I mean, obviously FARC mm. is well known for having 40% of its combatants be female, but also to be operating in areas where there are really high... Uh, numbers of female-headed households uh, where women are often the poorest and yet, mm. you know, supporting, you know, multiple family members mm. um, and also where women have encountered and um, experienced um, egregious violence from both sides, um, sexual violence, um, and at the same time often being the ones prosecuted, for example, for drug crimes because mm. they're the carriers, they're the four guys, right? Mm. So there are a lot of issues in that agreement um, and having women participate in the elite peace process, which was the outcome of women's civil society participation, led to an agreement which... Um, you know, was supported by uh, the formation of a gender subcommission, which was a series of experts who basically looked at everything in the peace agreement and were able to to recommend, um, you know, key 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 points to to the negotiating teams, and which also enabled 
you know, grassroots women from different perspectives to actually directly represent their perspectives to the negotiating teams in, in Havana, Cuba. And again, as I mentioned, the mediators were really supportive. I mean, for Norway, gender equality was one of the three things that they wanted to push in the peace. They wanted mm-hmm. to support in the peace agreement. It was something they knew a lot about from their other mediation work. And Cuba, obviously, strongly supporting that there. So we actually know we have a case of where it it worked. Now, that still begs the question of how that peace agreement is implemented and the, the necessary resources and support to enable that to happen and to be monitored. Um so it's still early days for Colombia, um, but nonetheless, I think we can see there that, and, and many would testify that you wouldn't have had that outcome without that social mobilisation led by women. It's lovely to know that there is an example that you can take from that would serve as examples for other. I mean, it's hard to translate very heavily, like contextually dependent situations where, like, that was a very specific way that things panned out in Colombia and it's great that we have that situation but it's hard to sort of replicate that in different areas given different political environments and things like that one of the problems of implementing or getting more women or gender inclusive having a more gender inclusive take on these situations is um what's the difference between having women participating in the peace process and then having actual agency within the peace process because one seems almost tokenistic Mm. Um, and does that happen often? Yeah, I mean this is um, your point about what constitutes meaningful participation and this is something that, you know, we've done a lot of research on and thinking about in terms of when the UN talks about meaningful participation, how are they actually defining it and how are they protecting and ensuring it? And for us meaningful participation is the idea that not it's not that you just turn up and tick a box, yes, we had a woman present, but it's about creating a kind of culture and environment where uh, that woman has the capacity to be able to be politically transformative. Um, so able to be able to, to speak, to be heard, to be listened to and to have that voice respected. Um, and in a number of the uh, case studies that we've been looking at, we've certainly seen examples where women have been present, uh, but they, you know, and and women have told us themselves, but they've been asked to make the tea or have been told that they're not supposed to speak um, or that they are forced because of the sort of um, political alignments to vote in a certain way. Um, And so that's not allowing them to engage in any kind of transformative politics or to even put issues that might be um, uh, relevant to women and the experiences of women on the agenda. Mm -hmm. So it certainly happens, you know, in in, in both regards. And so the question, you know, for uh, the UN is is how they create that environment uh, to be able to to ensure that that participation can be meaningful. Mm. I think a key um, thing just to build on what Kate's saying uh, in terms of supporting meaningful participation um, is that um, as well as the mere presence of women, you actually need to have that presence supported by uh, social mobilisation where you actually have uh, a mobilisation of people in the society to come to a certain kind of platform or perspective and that that platform or perspective needs to be informed by gender analysis and that's where research comes in. And so we, we see the kind of work we're doing at Monash GPS is actually really supporting that mm. influence of women in those processes. Recently we had a visit from a high-level delegation from Afghanistan and... Um, 
of of women who are working in government or outside government, very senior women, very influential, very concerned about peace and security. Um, and we were had the opportunity to present our research on a range of different countries, including those cases of Colombia, but also others like Nepal and Kenya and Iraq, and some of the learning we have about what works to support women's participation and women's influence mm. in peace processes. They were fascinated to hear about that. They were very engaged uh, in, in discussing with us the implications of those findings. And they uh, were also very interested to, ha- to have an ongoing conversation with us um, to help build their capacity mm. about the kinds of issues and concerns that they should bring um, to their government and, 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 and to, to the peace table, whether it's via donors or via uh, other organisations. So uh, gender analysis is critical. To mm. having influential participation. That's right. And it is, you know, in each country context and conflict context, there are always going to be different enabling and constraining factors um, with regard to the capacity for women to participate. And some of them might be cultural, some of them might be structural and physical. Um, but I think regardless of, of where it is, you know, I think, Jackie, um, I'd be interested to see if you agree. I've never come across a conflict context where there hasn't at some level been a very strong women's movement uh whether it be for peace or you know for for women's rights throughout the conflict um and so there is always a community in which you can tap into when it comes to those peace processes uh that either have been stifled or haven't been given the space Mm. in that formal in that formal setting so there is always that community there that organic community there yeah i think that's a really good point kate and i think the interesting thing about when you do gender-sensitive research, um, you generally know that. But Mm. the problem that we have when we don't do gender-sensitive research is we make all sorts of generalisations. Oh, there's no women active there. Those women Mm. are really oppressed. Um, That that They're not interested. Like, that's not their realm. As as my son once said to me, women don't fight the wars and they don't make the money, so why should they be included? Mm. And I've heard heard men in our field say that. I'll never forget as a uh, as a... Early, you know, early career scholar going to presentation and I was working on Eastern Europe and transformation from communism, also kind of transitions. And uh, he told me he'd gone over the border from Hungary to Romania uh, one day in a taxi and, he'd, uh, and he said, there's no women's movements in Romania. Mm. There's none. And I said, really? He said, how do you know? And he said, well, I asked the taxi driver. Mm. He said, no, our women don't do that. And I said, really? Is that a really rigorous research methodology? Yeah, how scholarly of you. I'm glad you went to so much trouble. <laughs> but he felt yeah. like he could make that claim. Yeah. And I'm concerned that, you know, I think that's that's often the case with, with policymakers and governments as well, you know. So, I mean, part of the role of researchers is to mm. make visible and to elevate uh, women's voices mm. and perspectives so that they actually can't be ignored and people can't make mm. those kind of statements. And that's exactly what a gender-sensitive conflict analysis does. You know, it asks questions about what are the gendered identities doing in conflict because traditionally we would only see the combatants or, you know, um, the high-level government people who are orchestrating the conflict. We wouldn't necessarily see uh, what others are doing. But a gender-sensitive conflict analysis asks us those questions and once you ask questions, you know, to quote Cynthia Enloe, where are the women? you find out that sometimes years before there's been any movement towards a formal peace process, there are women who have been agitating for peace and have been doing all this kinds of gra- you know, groundwork and grass- grassroots work uh, for peace. So this is what the conflict 
the gender-sensitive conflict analysis provides us. Mm. And maybe just to add to that, it's it's also not only um, that women have been fighting for peace, that you might actually, if you don't ask these questions, where are the women, mm. you might actually ignore those women who are actually also maintaining public services, mm. who are actually building peace even within the context of conflict, and whose resourcefulness and capacity can be built upon mm. in the peace building or peace implementation phase mm. um you know and what quite often happens is that especially internationals come in they don't see what the women have been doing and they just import a whole range of other you mm. know actors from outside uh mechanisms and frameworks without actually noticing what's already being done and trying to build upon that yeah looking in their own backyard to see how yeah. to build on these things uh the uh in order to implement a global agenda, the WPS uh, must take a pretty broad view on gender or does it take a nuanced view? Is this um, is it a broad view that allows for a new, nuanced and complex sort of analysis of gender or is it broad enough to sort of be a catch-all that they can sort of implement on a global scale? Look, it's a great question and I think WPS allows for that but whether or not it actually does that is another question. I mean, you'll notice our centre is called Gender, Peace and Security because we're interested in the intersection of gender politics. I was interested in the the, the difference between, yeah, Yeah. women, peace and security. Ideally, women, peace and security would do that as well. But, you know, for some of the reasons we've just been discussing... um, Occasionally there is this sort of homogenous view of women that all women are peacemakers or all women are victims or all women are vulnerable um, and these sorts of stereotypical images which don't understand the intersection of all sorts of identity markers in women's lives yes. lead to very kind of cardboard cutout views of what women, peace and security does. And often that can be, you know, not just unhelpful but actually, you know, problematic in terms of advancing women's rights. So, I mean, I think there's a whole range of actors doing a whole lot of things with women, peace and security. Our view is that you need to think about it in terms of, of gender politics and to recognise that the gender, the construction of gender is not just something that invades individuals and kind of creates ideas about what people's roles and responsibilities are. But it also, in you know, gender politics invades institutions, structures, knowledge claims, the way we speak, the kinds of things that seem sensible mm-hmm. to do. Um, and so our research is really about trying to deconstruct all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think um, you know, all of those points are, are, are good and I, I think that it's possible to see that there are – that gender is, is constructed um, – in a specific historical and social mm. and cultural context, but nonetheless to see that there are patterns globally. And one of the patterns we know is that, you know, there is a kind of hegemonic masculinity that is the preferred gender. And that has implications for everybody who doesn't conform to that. And that is most mm. men and most women. Um, and so part of what gender peace and security is trying to do is to try to recognise how a particular hegemonic masculinity that is linked to the use of violence and the acceptance of the use of violence over others um, is not a stable or safe or secure way to base a world order. Um, So it should, by gender inclusive, we want to be inclusive. And if if there are 92 genders, that's fantastic. That's Mm. at least what my son tells me on his current video game. Mm. Um, But it does require challenging a a particular hegemony. 
Um, and it, it's interesting to see, like, the struggle within the Women, Peace and mm-hmm. Security agenda, within political forums among states, how that very idea is, is contested. So I, I'm told that the uh, forthcoming um, resolution in the Security Council will be one which recognises uh, the relevance of the agenda um, in terms of LGBTI rights, mm. uh, in terms of really opening the door to, to thinking further about masculinities. Um, and this is a resolution about sexual violence and conflict and how mm. a range of different uh, uh, groups are, are, are victimised with, with that type of violence. Um, so I, th- I think that, that um, you know, that is the direction to go in, but um, we also recognise that there's a huge amount of pushback and contestation of that because it's hugely challenging yeah. to challenge the power structure, right? But that's essentially what Women, Peace and Security is about. Mm. It was founded as an agenda pushed by civil society over a century to challenge the masculinist power structure of the world. So it's pretty ambitious, right? <laughs> to have got this far is a kind of a huge success and we just see our role as um, producing the evidence, uh, uh, elevating the voices and perspectives and knowledge to kind of keep powering that agenda along. You've been listening to the Dyson House podcast. Special thanks to Jackie True and Katrina Liku from the Monash Centre for Gender, Peace and Security for joining me and the Australian Institute of International Affairs Victoria for making this possible.